Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. The Bible says less about heaven and hell than you might think, and a lot of what it teaches comes to us in the form of analogy, where things that are too wonderful or too terrible for the human mind are revealed through comparison to what we do understand. Where hell is concerned, it can be tempting to analogize the whole thing away and to tell ourselves that all that hellfire and brimstone was just a way of speaking about separation from God, which, to our ears at least, doesn't sound so bad. In this episode, though, Cameron and I are going to think aloud about, well, literal hell, what Paul describes not just as the absence of God, but as eternal destruction. It may not be an easy episode, and we certainly won't be speaking the final word on the subject, but if we're going to pass down the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the Bible's teaching about final judgment is something we need to address. Not long ago, on New Year's Day, I preached from 2 Thessalonians, verses 5 through the end of the chapter, in verse 12. And one of the ideas that emerges in that text, which we did not spend a lot of time on in the sermon, is eternal destruction. Uh, For context, Cameron, let me just remind you of what it is that Paul writes. So, He begins by talking about the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So the Thessalonians are experiencing suffering, but this suffering is not a punishment from God, and it's not a sign that they're not following him correctly. It's him testing them. It's him uh, working in them in order to glorify himself and extend his kingdom. But there's a coming judgment that is going to set things right. And so in uh, verse 7, Paul writes, "...to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ." And then here in verse 9 is the key they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. We'll stop right there and and just take that idea and spend a few minutes talking about it because this idea of eternal destruction, or to put it more succinctly, hell, is one that people have a lot of questions about. It's certainly something that we think of differently today than people in the past did. And so as a result, I think it's helpful for us to spend a little bit of time trying to basically, let's say, disambiguate, you know, to distinguish between inaccurate or unbiblical ideas of that eternal destruction, that coming punishment, and what is actually taught in the Bible and and what we should and must believe. So 
let me just ask you, Cameron, as someone who, who grew up in church, you absorb a lot of ideas <laughs> about both heaven and hell. And uh, if, if the, let's say the Cameron before he was awakened to theology and started learning, like, what does the Bible really teach? If you were asked just to give some of your impressions of, of what hell is all about, what are some of the things that would have come to mind? I mean, it's kind of horrifying to talk about because I, and it, and it really is. I mean, it, it actually is horrifying to talk about, but I remember feeling very scared, you know, as a child to think about hell. But of course, hell is a dark place, but it's also a fiery place. It's a, it's a place of isolation. I think I always imagined it sort of by myself or if there are others there, I'm in no way like connected with them because we're in this kind of torment hell is a place of of course pain conscious pain and i mean back then it was probably like a a physical fiery burning type pain you know like mm-hmm. as a kid i think it was yeah. that very dante inferno vision that you're you're suffering in this place forever so very awful yeah yeah i know when i was a kid i had a uh, maybe a strange relationship with the idea of hell. You know, I can relate to everything that you were just saying in terms of, you know, that, that sort of terrifying uh, kind of a torture pit. I think in, in my imagination, I pictured hell as a place where the devil reigned yeah, and where he, you know, gave the orders and, and kind of inflicted horrible uh, pain and punishment on people. And, at the same time, maybe this is just uh, you know being a, a, a young self-righteous person. I, I occasionally thought of it as a good thing that some people I didn't like might end up there. I, again, like Dante, who yeah. populates the underworld with, with a lot of people he wasn't a fan of. Uh, for me, it was actually the, the president at that time, uh, Jimmy Carter, ironically, uh, an evangelical Christian in office, but uh, I had as a kid pretended to be sick so that I could stay home from church and watch my favorite television show, Battlestar Galactica, uh, in the 1970s, the original Battlestar Galactica. And once I was alone with the television and the show was about to come on, the president interrupted it to give some kind of speech. And I don't know what the speech was about. I don't remember any of that. I just remember how frustrated I was, number one, because I had, you know, in, in, engaged in some deception in order to make this work. And then I'd been foiled in my plan and, um, and, and just anger, you know, that, that my will had been thwarted. And so my teacher at school gave kind of a, like an open period where we could just draw things and, and use our imaginations. And what I drew was a, a picture of hell in which Jimmy Carter was tied down on this fiery volcano and all around him were screens playing Battlestar Galactica where he was being forced to confront yeah. the terrible thing that he had done to me. And so I, I got, you know, on, on the one hand, a uh, terrible domain of torture, and on the other hand, uh, a place of justice. Right. And in you know, in a 
in a, a warped sort of way, the way childhood imaginations often are, I think those those two concepts are correct, right? That, that, that there's punishment, and that punishment is also justice. And so here in Second Thessalonians, that connection is really clear because the people Paul's writing to are suffering now, but justice is going to come, and that justice is going to be, quote-unquote, inflicted on their oppressors. And their oppressors will have to pay for what they've done. Right? So that's the, the idea of justice through punishment or through the, the implementation of a sentence, let's say. You know, it, it's been carried out. So when we think about life after death, and, and in particular, life after final judgment, when we think about heaven and hell, it's important that we think about them both in that context of justice being done and a, a kind of balancing of accounts, let's say, like, like a settling of the score or, or God putting things right. The things that are wrong in this world that are a torment to us are set right, but part of that setting right involves the punishment of sin. I think that the piece about justice is often left out of the discussion that I hear sometimes where it's all about the nature of hell. What is it actually like? Yes. And you know what's going on there. But people seem to overlook the fact that scripture says, as we just saw, that this is about Settling accounts in a way. Right. Yeah, is- well, and I think there's something in us that says this isn't really fair. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that sin is punished in this way, it feels out of proportion. You know, that, that if even the, the smallest transgression is enough to condemn a person, um, we just know innately that, that the punishment should fit the crime. And so if you tell me that, you know, for some you know, moderately bad deed in this life, the punishment is something called eternal destruction. That just feels out of all proportion to the crime that's been committed. So I think when we think about hell in particular, oftentimes our starting place is with that sensitivity that that we're already concerned that there's some injustice on God's part that's that's involved in, in this even being a conversation. But it seems to me that behind that mindset is an undervaluing of sin, right? Because we just take for granted that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? that it's out of all proportion to whatever the, the sin is. And to us as sinners, you can understand. I mean, I, I think we... we have good reason to want to think in those terms because we ourselves are guilty. But from God's point of view, I think it's true that the punishment does need to fit the crime. But in God's eyes, the the scale of the offense is much greater than it is in ours. And so in order to have, I don't know, like a right starting point when thinking about this, I think we first have to confront our tendency to undersell the egregiousness of sin. You mentioned earlier that 
today some people are talking differently about hell, though. So I'm curious if we could get to those. What what are some other prevailing views about hell? Yeah, so I think a lot of people would say, look, there's no such place, right? Even within the church, I think there's a, a growing number of people who want to see hell in purely metaphorical terms. Uh, in the sermon, I mentioned the uh, Jean-Paul Sartre play, uh, No Exit, um, where the, the tagline is hell is other people, right? And so we've taken the idea of alienation from God and said, well, okay, that's what hell really is. It's not literal torment. It's just separation from God. A key word there being just, because if you think about it, the, the reason we latch onto that is again, because we're thinking if I had the option between physical torments and separation from God, I'd take separation from God, right? Because physical torment would be painful. And again, I think we're not properly valuing those things. In biblical terms, I think the idea of the absence of God or separation from God, distance from his presence and his power, is meant to be a much more terrible thing than the idea of enduring some kind of physical pain, right? That that we are sort of thinking about this backwards when we imagine somehow that alienation from God is a uh, lessening of the the stakes, not not a raising of them. Now, having said that, I mean, you can understand not only why uh, people's sympathies might be with this sort of uh, allegorization of judgment, but but also there, there's some basis in Scripture to to at least be careful about how we talk about this, because the descriptions that we have of this punishment, uh, you know, the fiery torment and things like that, are analogical, right? Uh, our, our words uh, for hell are um, references to, you know, uh, a place outside the city where the rubbish is being burned. And so, so it's, it's being compared to that. And, and what that means is the reality is not exactly the same. And so a lot of people, I think, will, will focus on the question of, you know, is hell literal or not? And what they mean by that is, like, is there literal flame? Like, is it hot or, or something like that? And, and, you know, I feel like when I study the scripture and I ask myself those questions, I can't say one way or the other, you know, like, like, oh, it's, it's like this because of that analogical language, except I'll go this far and say, I, I don't think there's any reason to suppose that it's, it's not like the things it's compared to. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that it's somehow better than the things that it's compared to. And, and again, often I think that's, that's what's behind our efforts to to analogize is that we're trying to make hell seem not as bad and we're doing it because we're trying to um, let God off the hook a little bit, maybe um, enhance his image, make him not look quite so so you know mean and unfortunately, something is sacrificed in that 
So if you look at the Westminster Confession, when the Westminster Confession talks about these things, it, um, it talks about, this is right at the end of the Westminster Confession, and, and by end, I mean literally the final section in the final chapter. So chapter 33, in section 3 of it, uh, it, it says, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. Uh, and we'll just pause right there. It says something afterwards that you'll just have to go and, and read. But the phrase that I, I want to pull out is, to deter all men from sin. So if you ask yourself, why does the Bible teach what it teaches about punishment? I think the reason is as a deterrent, right? It's, it's to wake us up to the seriousness of sin so that we'll turn from it. If that's the case, then however well-meaning our efforts are, if, if the end result is to convince people that maybe hell's not so bad, uh, maybe hell basically amounts to getting what you want, which is not to have to be in the presence of God, then... Sure, fine, whatever. Um, in reasoning that way, we undermine this idea that the warnings of judgment are meant to deter us from sin and to lead us to repentance. And honestly, I just don't want to do things that have that effect. Yeah, because ironically, if if the argument is, well, it's, it's not as bad as as you've heard, the sort of implication there is, keep on sinning because it would you know i mean not really but it's yeah. like it, it's it wouldn't be that bad if you ended up there when we should want the exact opposite to happen like no it's probably you know it's bad and you don't want to go there therefore stop sinning <laughs> right i i think you know it, again going back to paul's way of talking about this in second thessalonians he contrasts it, the eternal life that we gain in the presence of god and this eternal destruction that happens to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, which isn't two groups of people. It's the same group of people with kind of an Old Testament way of describing them and a New Testament way of describing them. So those who are strangers to God, who do not turn to Christ, uh, receive this eternal destruction. And it's it's like the inverse or the, the opposite side of the coin from this eternal life that comes from being in his presence. And so when you think about that, I understand that, that a person might get it in their head, okay, so what you're telling me is I turn to Christ, I get eternal life, so I'm in his presence. But hey, maybe that's not what I want. Maybe I'd prefer to be outside of his presence and sort of do my own thing, and so I'll take this this other path. And it's, it's um, I think, at least for modern-day Christians, that proposition is one we are a lot easier with. Um, there's that, that turn of phrase of C.S. Lewis's, and it's, it's a profound turn of phrase, but I think the reason that it, it is such a comfort to us is, is perhaps because it, it leads us astray a little bit, but it's, it's that idea that if, if you will not say to God, thy will be done, then ultimately God will say to you, thy will be done. And so everybody gets what they want. It's just that some people want hell. And it's like, yes, right. That, that is absolutely coherent and accurate, except you're, you're 
leaving out the reality of the experience. Like what a terrible thing it is to be alienated from God. As a human being who's made to live before his face in his presence to glorify him, to be apart from that, to be separated from it, um, is a horrifying thought. And and that's, I think, the, the reason why Scripture speaks of it the way it does. If, if, if the Bible uses a phrase like eternal destruction to describe something, again, like I don't see how I, as a pastor, can tell you, well, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe you shouldn't worry about it. Maybe it's, it's exactly what you're going to want. I don't think anybody wants eternal destruction. And so, again, I, I think it's important not to lose sight of the big picture in arguing over the interpretation of the details. To defend C.S. Lewis, because we keep throwing him under the <laughs> yes, bus. Yes, we should defend <laughs> C.S. Lewis. I think, I think in that in context, he was he was more so talking about the dilemma of like free will, and less less about you know free will and sort of like determinism. Determinism, and he's he's working that argument out. Yeah. Not so much trying to soften hell. I don't think he's almost yeah, I think he's probably we could say he's he's almost channeling Jonathan Edwards yeah. in that moment in a way. So I'm not right. I'm not saying that that Lewis needs to be corrected on yeah. this or anything like that. I, I I'm more speaking to that idea that like there are certain quotes that resonate but for the wrong reasons. Right. And I think that's that's one that again, maybe this is just telling on myself, but but maybe one of the reasons I find that comforting is the thought that that God doesn't punish people; people punish themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. and it's uh, it, it it's comforting superficially, but not deeply. I just want to press on this a little bit more. I wonder if part of the issue is that we have received maybe some overly literal depictions of hell, where God is kind of this tortured master over this right. torture chamber. And reacting to that, we're, we're, we're like, well, maybe it's actually on us and it's not on God who, you know, who's doing this thing. Maybe that's part of what's going on. I mean, I, you I, know, think I that's can't fair. read yeah. into everybody's motives, but certainly that was part of my journey was, I remember when I first encountered Lewis's view, his account, it was, it was refreshing in a way. And you felt like, okay, this, this is still terrible, but the picture of God behind it all seems a little bit different. Yes. I, I think, you know, as in other situations, we have to take our lumps where, where you know, lumps are due. And, and it is true. I think that in the Christian tradition, a lot more has been said with a lot more confidence about both heaven and hell than what the Bible actually teaches. One of the things that surprises a lot of people, I think, is that we don't really have a lot of concrete, quote-unquote, literal information about what heaven is like. Uh, even to to the point where, you know, I, I try to steer people more towards thinking about a new heaven and earth, new creation, uh, to get away from the idea of the the disembodied eternity in the clouds kind of thing. Well, hell has a similar kind of um, kind of mythological dimension in the sense that we have gone far beyond anything that Scripture teaches in imagining the the various 
uh, horrors that uh, are there. And, and of course, you mentioned Dante and uh, Dante's Inferno. Uh, well, there's contemporary literature, if I could call it literature as well. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. unfortunately, somebody plopped one of those books into my hands when I was in like early high school, like what is it? 13 minutes in hell or something. Okay. And they, I mean, it's like a kid that's in the hospital and apparently died and spent or a man. I don't know. I don't even remember but it was, I mean, it was literally like demons. Yes. Trying to torture him and torturing other people. Right. These monsters. And then, right. and then he woke up and he came to the light and that yeah. stuff I just think is not helpful because it's so extra biblical. Yeah. And it, so I think if we wanted to think about what's wrong with those kind of visions, so you know, going through Dante, through, you know, Paradise Lost, through, you know, that whole long tradition and, and all of those, you know, great, bizarre, you know, paintings and all these these depictions is that that all of them seem to represent this place of destruction as the realm of Satan, where Satan and his minions call the shots, administer the torments and 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 the way that scripture describes this is like a place of you know their punishment right now satan's not in charge now dante doesn't get this wrong right dante does not have satan running the show but but oftentimes i think that's the way we we picture that going on and so it really subverts what's happening right and it, you imagine that that hell is like a modern day prison, right? That the inmates run or something like that. And, and all this terrible stuff is going on um, under the warden's nose. It's like, no, this is actual just punishment that's being administered here in, in you know, a, a perfect way that's inconceivable to us because we as sinners don't want to even think about what this eternal destruction might mean. But, but if you have all of this poetic license being used and people are... Uh, presented these things without any distinction being made, like that this this is all made up, that we used our imaginations, that sort of thing. Eventually, they they come to recognize or realize, hey, wait a second, this isn't in the Bible, and there's a very understandable reaction against it. And I think that's a lot of why there's a there, there's resistance or skepticism, even towards talking about what is taught in the Bible, that you kind of go to the other extreme, right? If, we, if we've talked about something too much, then we kind of want to not talk about it at all. And like I say, I think it's understandable. It's just that we don't ever want to be in a position where there's something that, that Scripture teaches that we're not talking about at all uh, because we feel like other people have talked about it too much. I mean, we, we want to hold on to what is taught, and this is taught in Scripture. There's another thing I think we should talk about, too, which is um, in that phrase, eternal destruction, the word destruction is used, and that does raise a question about um, uh, what people refer to as annihilation or annihilationism. So there's another uh, strand of thought that says, yes, it's really terrible to be separated from God in this way, to be punished for our sin, alienated from him. But it's not forever because what God does is destroys or annihilates those people who are judged. And so they no longer exist and are not 
literally in eternal torment. It's more like they're they're just sort of destroyed and therefore not, you know, not in existence. Yeah. The consequences are seen as eternal here. Yeah. So it's eternal destruction because you're destroyed forever. Exactly. You never come back. Right, right. So so it's the stakes are high. The stakes are eternal. But once the deed is done, you're gone. You know, you don't exist anymore. And and so I think the the popularity of that idea, this is oversimplifying, but I think it has a lot to do with, with just the sense that that's more merciful. That if you're going to inflict a punishment, that maybe you just get it over with. And the idea of God just destroying all those who are alienated from his presence feels more merciful than you know, some kind of never-ending torment as a result of, or as a penalty for their sin. Do you think there's any biblical warrant for that view whatsoever? I don't think there's biblical warrants, but I do think it's an understandable um, misreading. Let's put it that way. That, as I say, even in that phrase, eternal destruction, I think th- there is a, uh, a way of looking at that and, and thinking, okay, well, destruction, right? Life is continuing. If I have eternal life, I continue to exist and live. If I have destruction, then I don't. Right? It's the opposite, whatever the opposite of life is, and it's never ending. And you know, so I, I think it's it's an understandable interpretation. And because you know, there there are people whose sincerity and intelligence I respect who who try to hold on to an idea like this. I don't want to just dismiss all the reasoning out of hand. However, I I do have a question that. I, I, I question fundamentally the assumption that this is based on the the motivation I think that behind it, which is that it is more merciful to end the existence of people than it is to to sentence them to eternal punishment. Again, this is this is me reasoning. It's not you know quoting a proof text, but I, I think of you know, Anselm's ontological argument. And, and one of the premises there is that it is better to exist than not to exist. Mm-hmm. And as I think about that applied to this circumstance, as weird as it sounds, I wonder if it isn't more merciful, the vision of eternal punishment found in scripture compared to the vision found in annihilationism. Like we assume in the same way that you know modern advocates of euthanasia assume that you know mercy destruction or mercy killing is is the more humane thing, but what if that's not true like what if it would be better like what if you had the choice again hypothetically to continue to exist but to live out that judgment for eternity or not to exist? Like, are we certain that it would be better to choose non-existence? I don't think that's as obvious to me as, as maybe it, it was the first time I ever had the thought. Yeah. You know, as I reflect on it, I, I start asking myself if perhaps even here, 
we see something about the merciful character of God that, you know, you could easily imagine an outcome where God says, well, all those who, you know, persist in their rebellion and refuse to turn from their sin, I will vaporize. But instead, we're told, no, I, I will punish them for eternity, implying they will continue to exist. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to put too much weight on what is clearly just speculation. But but it just makes me wonder if maybe there is more mercy in that, and that we are um, kidding ourselves a little bit when we imagine that our solutions are somehow painting God in a better light than than what He has already determined to do. It's a fascinating question. I've never really thought in too much depth about it but i think a, one assumption that we bring into the conversation is that hell is the worst possible the worst possible thing that ever could be mm-hmm. and in a sense we want to say it is but what you're maybe suggesting here is perhaps god is still exercising some kind of mercy even in this ultimate judgment and and i feel like we're in the realm of speculation right now <laughs> oh yeah and and again you know i, I said already i don't i don't want to say anything yeah. that somehow lessens the deterrent right. effect of these warnings so uh, please don't hear me say well maybe hell's not so bad maybe it's god you know showing mercy to that's i'm not saying that what i'm saying is in the context of annihilation it just seems to me that we might have our, our wires crossed here in in trying to come up with a way that there can still be an eternal punishment. It's just not as bad as what we think the one in the Bible is. And again, that's painting with a broad brush. And I recognize if, if you're an annihilationist, you would want to say, that's not what I'm saying. But but just, you know, bear with me and and hear this, you know, as 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 me just thinking out loud about this stuff where uh, as in so many things that that are beyond us, things that Scripture doesn't reveal all the details, I, I feel like rather than taking an approach where where we, we we try to limit how much of it we put confidence in and and only believe in the stuff that feels really sturdy, it's better for us to try to take on board everything God is giving us. You know, again, we're weak and limited and so so maybe we can't always you know accept all that that he reveals as quickly as we should but but i'd like our default setting to be one of of acceptance and and trust and and recognition that i may not understand it all it may not make sense to me it it may terrify me and apparently it's meant to and yet all of it is orchestrated by a God who is utterly good and utterly loving. And I have to trust that when all is revealed and I understand all the things that I don't currently understand, I'm going to be able to look at it all and look at him and say, aha, yes, this is good. This, this makes sense and uh, clearly is the, is, is the right way.
Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. 